thanks for the um, um, the opportunity to come and discuss these issues. Um, I came out with, with some trepidation um, because I, I suspected that the that the argument that I was going to present, which was basically that um, that there is no clear evidence of, of certainly a hard interpretation of securitisation of, of immigration, and um, would put me um, out on a limb in a, in a gathering like this. But I gather that that's not the, the case at all. It's, a, uh, it's rather it's rather mainstream. Um, I should say something about um, not not being based in a uh, in uh, the academy. Um, exactly what the extent of our, our involvement in this discussion. I have um, been working uh, for a long time as a, as a legal case worker, um, dealing directly with people with immigration problems and helping them take them up with the authorities, um, arguing cases in court and so on. And then at different stages of my career as a policy officer, dealing with the analysis of policy as it was <coughs> produced by the Home Office and also um, as it was emerging from the different organs of the, the European Union as well. Um, and the latter part of my career, for the last four years, it's been working with the Migrants' Rights Network, um, where its um, specific contribution is basically to, to work with um, organisations across the UK um, who are working with migrant communities and generally um, looking for civil society approaches for being able to support the rights of migrants to, to build up the evidence base and to build platforms for advocacy um, and so on. Um, and um, we, uh, we, we certainly do take the, the discussions that are being held around tables like this very important, um, uh, though our day-to-day -day agendas are probably dictated very much by the, the sense of the, the, the issues that are, that are being shared over uh, very, very immediately. Um, because we do look for opportunities for making an impact on the big policy agendas and knowing the, the different theoretical frames that people are coming at these, the, at these issues is very important to us. Um, our engagement with this issue, or, or my engagement with this issue, um, it was, um, I, I wrote an article that was published in a, a book that was edited by uh, Pat Noxello of, I think, um, University of East Anglia and, and Jeff Hoisman a couple of years ago called On These About Strangers and um, Leveraging Anxiety as a Basis for Policy, um, which at that time was looking, um, what I thought, fairly fresh at the evidence um, that the security agenda had made an impact on um, UK immigration policy. And I do stress UK um, immigration policy. I thought Nicholas answered to my question earlier on. Um, um, but, Trump's the, the differences between the UK and, and, and the United States, where it seems obviously 9-11 resonates much more strongly with a, a lot of, of, of social agendas. Um, but looking um, specifically at what was going on in the, in the UK um, and trying to track it through um, uh, in very practical terms, in terms of looking at the, at the decisions that were being made um, in terms of visa applications, in terms of applications for residence permits, and um, knowing the way in which the uh, surveillance and the policing of, of, of migrants uh, communities in the UK was taking place, the extent to which that had been informed by a security agenda, in, in, in a sense of practical decision making, um, it seemed to me to be very dubious. Um, but at the same time, um, I was certainly um, prepared to concede, this was based on 
the advantage of having, at that time, a prominent Focaldian as my next-door neighbour, who I used to go to the pub and drink with there, Didier Bigo, um, and run some of these ideas past him. And um, I've got a, a nice quote from him uh, here, that uh, um, uh, he, he was writing about the uh, proposed framework for understanding the ways in which the rhetoric of threat and unease are used when, and the quote is, professionals in charge of the management of risk and fear security transfer the legitimacy they gain from struggles against terrorists, criminals, spies, counterfeiters towards other targets, most noticeably transnational political activists, people crossing borders, or people born in the country with foreign migrants. Um, and what this um, pointed me uh, very much towards was looking at the significance of the politi political rhetoric, even though I think that though it was difficult to be able to trace, um, certainly on a one-to-one -one basis, the path of that political rhetoric to what was changing on the ground. Um, it clearly was a part of the process of purchasing leverage um, for a set of policies which were liberal, um, that were requiring a traditional, fairly laissez-faire approach um, towards community relations and relations with, with, uh, with foreigners to be overturned um, in order that they could be replaced by a much more intense um, approach to uh, monitoring, surveillance, identity card, uh, things of this nature. And there was definitely utility um, as far as the politicians and the policy makers were concerned to be got from the security, the anti-terrorism anti agenda uh, for, for, for that purpose. But the key thing is, what would, would all of this have happened if it hadn't been for 9-11? Um, in my view is that the, the general trend of development would have remained the same um, because the transition which was underway um, was precisely that, as Vicky was just saying, uh, towards managed migration. Um, and this is a, a very significant development, and I think it really has to be understood what was going on here. Uh, the advent of new labour in 1997 uh, wasn't simply business as usual as far as immigration policy uh, was concerned, even though on the headline issues it did appear to be the case that they'd taken on wholesale all the prejudices against immigrants that the, that the Tories had had. Um, what was very much on the agenda, and at, at this point I, I did have some privileged content, uh, content. I was able to observe this process because the, the NGO I was working in, uh, which had been friendly to the Labour opposition, for Labour when it was in opposition, trying to unravel the mysteries of immigration policy for them. So they continued to bring us in during the early stage when they were, um, when they were formulating these issues. And there was a, a sense on their part um, that they were going to manage a transition, that they were going to be doing things differently. And the logic of this was, you know, came from exactly the New Labour project. It was the, the sense that it was business friendly, that it was technocratic, that it was in favour of modernity, that globalisation, a, a, a humane version of, 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 um, of globalisation was at the core of it. And even in those early days, um, that human rights um, was an issue. Um, that they were, going to, they were going to be rolling through. And all of this pointed to the fact that they, were, um, they, they saw themselves as uh, opening up 
reversing the policy that had existed effectively since the mid-1970s, the 1973, um, the 1971 Immigration Act, which came into effect in 1973, um, which I think was pretty well a good example of, of a zero migration policy. Um, it used to be uh, summed up in the, the Home Office mission statement as being the reduction of immigration to an irreducible minimum. Um, and they ditched that. That was one of the first things that they did. And the mission statement henceforth was summed up along the lines of uh, to manage migration in a way which would complement, um, I can't remember exactly, but would complement the needs um, of, of employers for growth or, or, or whatever it was. Um, but it was clearly, um, in terms of the messages that were being picked up and relayed and going back to the civil, civil servants, it was a very, very different message. Um, the problem of it was, and this is the thing that drove us completely mad at this time, uh, was their profound and deep belief that they would never be able to sell that to the voting public. Uh, there was no way of wrapping up a message about immigration. Uh, that suggested that, they, um, that there would be any form of liberalisation at the borders um, which would be regarded as, as good news. Or everything that they were getting from their opinion polls uh, was suggesting that it would be treated as, a, as, a, as an unpopular message. And at this time there was a, a little war of the opinion polls going on. We were producing uh, Mori Ipsos polls which were indicating that the, uh, the level of concern about migration in, in 19... 1997, 1998 was in a region of about 5%. I mean, about the point of which it's regarded as, as not a, a salient issue as far as public, public opinion is concerned. Um, but the Labour, the, the government was adamant that there was a huge under-reporting of public anxieties about immigration. Um, and this might be another example of the absent other. Uh, but in advance of the backlash, um, they had to craft their policies around that in the expectation that the space for that would grow. And that the belief that it wouldn't, in the belief that they could provide the assurances and the guarantees that would contain anxiety, um, but in the event that it did, that they'd given themselves a good, a good bottom line in which they, they could defend their, their position from. Um, the problem with it was um, that the, and exactly the way that they approached all these issues was gradual. Um, there was no big bang at these early stages. The first issues to be taken up uh, were that of the, um, the crisis in the, essentially in the asylum system with huge backlogs, people waiting for asylum determinations for, uh, for many, many years, um, and the need to approach that. Um, and the, the, the position that came out there illustrated the, the way that New Labour was going to be tackling this issue, uh, which was very much that asylum was a problem. Asylum didn't fit in with this schema of managing migration for the benefit of the, of the British economy, um, because asylum um, was still had its heart um, a human right, a, um, a, a position which the refugee could argue against the state's authorities uh, in which she found herself um, and which could be used in order to uh, limit the activities of, of those state authorities. Um, and that was precisely the situation. That was a quid pro quo that, let, that the government was seeking, the opportunity to be able to move, all, um, to move towards a system in which higher volumes of migrants were, were being managed across frontiers. 
uh, but the assurance that had to be given to the public that it will be on our terms, that we will put in place through the, the mechanisms of, 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 of technology, of, of surveillance, of, of, um, of, of administrative competence and so on and so forth, would be one that was truly capable of determining the good migrants from the bad migrant, the, the useful migrant from the non-useful migrant, um, and we could give the public the assurance that having done that, they, they could act decisively against the bad migrants. Anybody who had been identified as falling out of this system, they could act uh, with, without restraint. Um, and human rights was a problem at that level. Human rights, the ability of the asylum seeker to be able to challenge a negative decision on an asylum application um, got in the way of that. Uh, whereas the absence of a human rights framework for economic migrants um, meant that they had more scope for being able to act in that area, to envisage handling higher volumes of people, um, precisely because when they determined that these uh, higher volumes of people were no longer needed, they could say, that's it, you're, you're out of the country, leave, uh, leave, leave, leave within a matter of days and a, and a matter of hours. Um, so the, the, there was that di uh, dimension, sort of a problematic approach to it, and it was it, the importance of, in that early days, having to address the asylum backlog. Um, it was the subject of the first white, white paper, fairer, fairer, faster, I think it was called. Um, it then subsequently moved the transition to um, the, the, um, uh, David Blunkett as Home Secretary, and um, did bring another um, ideological frame uh, into it. It was a shift, if you like, from... I think Straw um, actually saw himself as being an old-style liberal um, in these issues, and um, and um, basically remaining within the within the framework of the policies he would inherited, but looking for the opportunity to maximise the scope for fairly liberal decisions. It was his he still apparently goes around saying that his proudest achievement in government was uh, the Human Rights Act. But I suppose in comparison to all the things he did, that. Uh, Wars in Afghanistan, in Iraq, Iraq, or whatever. Um, but you know, it, 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 it went very, very, uh, very deep with it. And um, Blunkett was a, a different character. Um, Blunkett, I think, was much closer to a humanitarian um, style of politics or civic republicanism, is the way that that he promoted it. It came very much from his position as a as a, a northern radical in English politics, as somebody who. Um, being a leader of Sheffield Council during the days of the, the, the battles against, um, against Thatcherism. And the perspective that he took, took on it was what needed to be policed in migration, as well as the purely economic decisions as to who was a good migrant and who was a, the, the bad migrant in terms of their, their, the, the added value that they would bring to the economy. Um, but it was also the contribution that they would be making to the quality of civic life, um, that they would play the game, that they would accept the rules, that they would be active citizens and things of, of this nature. And uh, I mean, Bob, it was a complicated character. And he, was, he was well capable of, uh, of drawing lines. This didn't mean anti-Islam, um, as far as he was concerned. It was quite possible to crack a, uh, a good British Islam out of this process. And he was looking for opportunities to be able to enge engineer this there. Um, but it was part of the agenda, the, the second white paper, um, uh, uh, Safe Havens, uh, Secure Borders, 
I think it was called, um, was projecting an image of a, uh, an idyllic British society which was diverse, culturally diverse, lots of different inputs coming in from different places, uh, but it cohered around something called core British values. Um, and the issue was being able to spell out what those were and then to make progress towards those core values a transparent, something which the whole of British society was able to observe with, with respect to the migrants as they came into the country. And they could mark off the different stages of it to see what progress was, was being made. The difficulty then was, and I think you know, in, the, in the UK context, an event that was even more significant than 9-11, uh, were the, uh, the events in Northern England in, in, the, in the summer of, um, of, of 2001, which was the, the riots, the, um, the uprisings uh, that took place in Oldham, uh, Blackburn, Burnley, and so on, um, when um, uh, the poorly administered, the, the, the chickens came home to roost for decades of poorly administered policies which appeared in a blundering way, seemed to have some sort of a, uh, a rationale about multiculturalism at their heart, um, but because of the sheer ineptness of the, the way that they'd been administered, it actually succeeded in producing divided communities where there was very little interaction. Um, but interestingly enough, not non-British uh, communities, the, the elements who were most active in the, in the fighting, uh, young males, basically, from both sides of the border, um, of the divide and um, took on their task very much at all wearing Burnley football shirts or Blackburn Rovers football shirts. The only difference between the Muslims and the Brits was whether or not they had a can of lager in their, in their hands. But they, the, the, the physical, the, the dramaturgy of the confrontations um, was very much that of a good old-fashioned riot, um, very much in the, in the British tradition that my father would have said was a regular occurrence. Uh, at any time that he, he was growing up. Uh, but it suddenly became possible to characterise this as being evidence that British values had not taken deep root uh, within the, the descendants of these migrant communities. Um, and they, these, these were migrants, very often they, were, they weren't even the children of migrants, they were the, they were the grandchildren of migrants who'd come during the course of the, of, of the 1950s. Um, and it pointed to a, uh, an approach to policing migration, which now extended beyond the issue of border management, um, right the way through to um, uh, integration, cultural assimilation, uh, the way in which, it, which uh, generations interacted with one another. Um, virtually everything was, was part of the, of the mix. The, the, the challenge to security was not simply in the, the volume of the people who were moving. Um, it was the nature of the communities that were being formed over long periods of, 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 of time during the course of that movement. Um, and I, I think that that um, had set in train well before the sense of these issues. And it wasn't completely out of the blue for a lot of these, uh, particularly the, the MPs representing English constituencies in the in the, the northern parts of England. They, they well knew what the, the level of division and, uh, and tension uh, was within, with, within their communities. It had been anticipated, it had been discussed for a long period of time, um, and it was written into, into policy. And it was, you know, it was at this time, an advance of 9-11, 
that the that the issue of surveillance became central to the to the discourse. I mean, both at the level of the physical surveillance, the technologies of surveillance, the e-borders, the biometrics, the iris scans, all things of this nature um, were being were, uh, were were coming online. Um, but also the identity cards, um, the identity cards which were being presented as a badge of Britishness. The, in the early days of the, the debates about the introduction of identity cards, they were actually referred to as entitlement cards. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't about who you were. It was the benefits that you were able to draw down, down from society and, and making that distinction. Um, and it was unpopular. Um, it was it ran up against a strong element of civil libertarianism, which extended. Eventually, it showed itself to be far stronger on the right of the political spectrum than it was on the left. As we as we know, the, the Conservative government made it one of their main campaigning elements in the in the election that promised to scrap um, the the identity card program. Um, and um, Labour, frankly, needed leverage in order to be able to, to justify this. Um, and you see um, in the statements that were made throughout that period, uh, Blunkett appearing before select committees of the House of Commons on different stages, um, there was um, the description of the threats that were being presented by migration as extending from terrorism um, right the way through to the disturbances that had been, uh, that had been taking place there. Um, and still it wasn't sufficient. It still it's, it got some of the way, and for a long period of time, the public was sort of um, in an undecided position as far as these measures were concerned. Um, but my, my, my view at the moment, it, I, I think, is that there was, there was no logic within immigration itself. The, the sense of the, the, the threat, a threat that was so sufficiently large in order to displace um, a core component of, of what actually was felt about British society, uh, which is that we're not a place where the police can stop you on the street and demand that you produce um, evidence of your, your identity, that in, in order to throw that, overthrow that, then there needed to be um, further, further changes. Um, and the other thing about it is, I mean, I, I think it's often underestimated as well, is that there were large parts of um, um, immigration policy that were tremendously unpopular during this period. Um, the policy of refugee dispersal, of sending migrants to uh, from their, their first point of, of reference, which is generally to stay in the London and the southeast of England, um, to cities where um, there was there was usually very substantial accommodation um, available uh, for them, uh, provoked quite a sharp reaction. Um, but from some of it on the basis of we don't want them in our backyards. But another significant component of, component of it is people who were recognising that very vulnerable uh, pe people would continue to be exposed, uh, projected on a further continuation of a very dangerous journey, and they were being put in vulnerable places. I remember the, the debate that broke out over the, the, the murder of a, of a Turkish refugee in, in, on the site of the state in Glasgow in which all of these things were exhibited at that point. Um, there was also a substantial uh, revolt by the trade unions um, over the issue of vouchers. Um, um, uh, asylum seekers weren't given money um, in order to support themselves. They were given supermarket vouchers. Um, and there was a, a large reaction against that from a liberal uh, perspective, that, that people shouldn't be treated in this way. 
Um, so the, there were continual arguments within the camp that, that needed leverage from somewhere, that the, that the imperative simply of managed migration itself was not sufficient in order to uh, get the emotional <coughs> purchase that would allow these elements of the sense of fairness and, and you know, um, the, the, the laissez-faire elements that, that had marked British society, that that wasn't immediately available that was there. Um, the trade-off was always that the, uh, that the government, in, in taking these, these measures, would be furnishing itself with this capacity to distinguish between the good and the bad migrants. And there was a, an interesting flurry uh, where, where Blunkett wrote an article for The Guardian in which he insisted that there was no uh, natural limit to the number of people who, who could be admitted each year to the UK. Um, that the sole issue was what happened to them when they got here, um, whether they um, found themselves in productive employment, were paying tax and generally on course for integration and becoming good citizens. Um, and if those boxes could be ticked, um, providing they, they were coming by the economic migrant routes rather than the refugee routes, um, then he was prepared to contemplate substantial numbers of people, large numbers of people coming in which itself was a, um, a factor which uh, influenced the decision that was taken um, in 2003 not to take advantage of the uh, provisions allowing transitional restrictions to be placed on uh, new members of the <coughs> European Union, the, the option that was taken by most other um, member states for the, the, the so-called A8, the accession eight nationals. Um, only Britain, Ireland and Sweden in the end um, didn't adopt these. Um, and it was all justified on the basis that, well, you know, there are 600,000 long-term unfilled vacancies in the UK economy. Um, migrants uh, can come here and they'll simply be absorbed into, into the work that's available for them. Um, but the trade-off there, the, the, short, the belief that, that was a, 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 it was possible to argue that, was that the numbers would, it, you know, e even though Blunkett was prepared to proclaim that numbers didn't particularly phase it. Um, clearly, there was a background element that said that if they, if they do become too large, um, and as we got closer to the 1st of May 2004, the messages started coming through that they, because of the effect of other countries closing down the options for free movement, that it was channeling a much bigger group of, of new member state migrants to the UK than it, um, had previously <coughs> been the case. Um, this, this became a, a huge problem for managed immigration policy because it undermined the central plank of the argument, which is that we are in charge, we are in control with our technological and our, our uh, bureaucratic competence. You can be absolutely sure um, that we're sifting through all the evidence-based policy making and other, another big slogan of that period, but we're sifting through it all uh, we're coming up with a correct analysis of the situation and we are introducing the appropriate policies to manage it. Um, and from 2004 onwards, that no longer seemed to be the case. It ceased to be a plausible argument. Uh, even though, you know, all of the, um, it was what, close on half a million mi uh, EU migrants who came into the UK in the three years after 2004, uh, virtually all of them went into employment and all of them were paying tax and, and so on. So that part of Blunkett's prognosis remained absolutely correct. 
Um, but the headline issue was the was the numbers again. The opportunity in getting the numbers wrong on such a big issue that the the uh, right wing or entrepreneurs of public opinion um, were able to project this as evidence that the borders were open. Um, there was no effective control. The system the system was out of control. <coughs> um, and this was subsequently followed up. It was the it induced a period of panic reactions, uh, change of ministers, and uh, the government and, and they had. U-Labour had been continually doing, continue, every two years there was a major new piece of legislation in Parliament, um, giving the, generating the impression that it was a, a ship with numerous leaks that were springing out all over the place, and what was continually required was, was surveillance in order to be able to come up with these acts and changes to regulations to, to fill these up. And it went on from that, the, in 2005, 2006 there was a the, uh, the debacle with the um, um, discovering that 1,300 uh, convicted criminals who served their sentences um, and who the courts had ordered to be deported at the end of their sentences went um, because the Home Office had lost track. Uh, they didn't know where they were. Um, and um, this sense of loss of control, it led to another um, Home Secretary having to resign after Blunkett had previously resigned. Um, and, um, it, uh, and, and a new Home Secretary declaring that the system wasn't fit for purpose, that the, the basic tool for the management of, 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 of migration simply wasn't up to the job, and, and yet another period of upheaval with the, the old Immigration and Nationality Director becoming in rapid succession the, the Border and uh, Asylum and Immigration Agency, and, and now what it is now, the UK Border Agencies major changes, major major transformations of, of, of structure. Um, and I should think I'm probably getting close to... Uh, very, uh, very close. Very, very, very close, yeah. Um, the, um, where, so where did um, the security agenda fit in this? Where is the evidence that the, um, something that is worth talking about as a security policy emanating from, from a different perspective, a non-immigration perspective on here that was aimed at, at, um, at eliminating, at assessing harm, managing risk and so on and so forth. Um, and I mean here I, I really am at the mercy of people who have, who have made expert studies of this. My own stumbling uh, efforts to come, uh, to come to terms with it are, are reduced to the, 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 the legislation, the two, the two acts very early in the day. Um, and a couple of um, uh, cabinet papers, the, the last of them being, I think it was a 2007 uh, migration in a, in a global, uh, uh, security in a global hub, I think that, that's what it was called. Um, and that was limited, uh, trying to find an immigration dimension within that. I mean, one of the things that was picked up on, on it, I think, was a, a sense of ambivalence amongst that the pure um, security experts themselves to the business of immigration uh, for a number of reasons. I've, I've never had a conversation as far as I'm aware with an MI5 officer, um, but the, um, the stuff that maybe I probably have, but I just wasn't aware they were, they were doing it. Um, but the, um, the sort of issues that they were picking up with was that uh, there was a fundamental conflict between the, the, the culture of managing immigration and, and uh, dealing with terrorist threats. Uh, the management of immigration basically was a cheap uh, and nasty affair of um, 
moderately trained um, officials um, operating fairly near the uh, near the bottom of the, the civil service pay scale, um, who's, who's where the business of teaching them all they needed to know about immigration control could be accomplished within a couple of months or so. Um, and then allowing them to operate with very broad brush um, concepts like pressure to immigrate. Um, this person's age Jamaican, he's aged between 24 and 32, um, he doesn't seem to have steady employment back in his own country, therefore um, we can deem him as being in the category of somebody who is under pressure to emigrate. Um, and then very little at that point, the, the task of the advocate for this person was to say, well, yes, you've given us a general description, but we can show you this, we can show you this, we can do this, we can, etc., etc. Um, and the system actually was not capable of dealing with that, with that detailed personal intelligence about the, it conflicted with their, the, the values which they needed in order to do their job as immigration officials. Um, whereas the, the, the culture, and you would hope that the culture of intelligence services is the opposite. Um, rather than operating with the broad, they actually have to get beyond the broad brush um, in order to be able to access the information as to whether or not this particular individual um, has developed contacts with uh, criminal gangs, um, that they have associations, that the websites that they've been visiting, that the information that they're that they've been looking at, that the contacts that they're dealing with are likely uh, to put them within the category of somebody who is a, a potential terrorist. So it's two opposite um, ends of the information spectrum uh, that they're operating at. Um, and they have a potential for getting in the way of each other, as they, the, the, the intelligence services expressed this may. Uh, police practices in adopting stop and search um, in terms of, of young Muslims, or people who could be presumed to be young Muslims, in many, which absolutely exploded in the in the period after um, the the, uh, the the London bombings, on the basis that it obscured the lines of communication that, that they were operating with, and um, that their dependence on being able to get good quality um, intelligence from from people who were from within the community who were sympathetic with intelligence uh, objectives was simply being uh, obscured by the resentment that was being generated by the broad brush activity. So there were. Um, but there are reasons for believing that the security uh, agenda is not easily accommodated within the migration agenda. Here's to some extent, I mean, one thing that is definitely present is uh, the watch lists, um, which are ubiquitous. Um, people who are on the, or, or they're supposed to be, uh, on the list of having associations with terrorist networks or criminal networks, um, they are regularly and automatically consulted by immigration officers during the course of the visa, visa process. Um, but thereafter, if, if any, anything is identified, if anything comes on the radi radar, um, it is not an immigration matter from that point onwards. It is referred to the intelligence agencies to take, to take the, the next action. So bringing this all to a, 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 a conclusion, two minutes, all right. I, I really thought I was going to speak for 20 minutes. I thought you'd been very generous giving me half an hour. Um, the, um, I, I, I think that the, um, the, I mean, the situation remains the same. We, where are we at the moment, where, as far as the, the security agenda is concerned? 
Um, it has now switched, I think, under, under the Conservative government, which is essentially the, 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 the range of differences between their positions and those of, of New Labour is actually not so great. Their um, basic take on um, immigration policy is more or less the same. Um, they have the expectation that it will continue at high levels. Um, they're concerned about net, um, long-term net migration, uh, which means that they're interested not so much in, in reducing numbers of people coming for temporary migration purposes, uh, but people who are on route for long-term settlement. And at the moment, there's a, an important consultation that's taking place uh, where they're seeking uh, the opinions of the public of how, how they can reduce the, uh, the relationship between short-term migration and eventual long-term settlement. Um, they're the sort of issues which I think um, that the securitization which is being looked at at the moment is um, switched much more to the very basic elements of being able to, to demonstrate that the numbers, that the borders are once again manageable. Um, but the, the standards of judgment for these issues, there, there is very little reference to um, external uh, threats of a crime, terrorism, national security nature. Uh, whilst this argument is being made, uh, the reference points are still very much the traditional immigration agenda. Um, the, the anxieties that are being drawn on um, are those of, of overcrowding. The significant figure that's always been quoted now is uh, a population of 70 million by, by 2030. Um, that they, which um, in some obscure ways is, is um, supposed to be a, a national security threat. Um, and immigration policy is struggling uh, to, to contain that. But I think, um, um, you know, that, that's my point. I mean, I think based on our experience on monitoring, our tracking of the, of, of the arguments is that the, what might be called, certainly in a hard sense, a security agenda has had a limited impact on the way in which immigration control policies are operationalized, but it does play. It has at times played a part in the rhetoric. It has been uh, what politicians have striven for um, in order to be able to justify um, the draconian measures that they've been proposing, uh, not for security reasons, but for reasons of, of in their terms, good um, migration management. Thank you very much. That was very interesting.